John Christensen and serve as executive pastor here at LBC. Um, encouraged to be able to say hi and welcome, especially if you're new. We know it takes courage to step into a church for the first time, and so a special welcome from us. If you're uh, willing, after the service, would love to be able to meet you outside by the Welcome Center near the Donuts. And at 10:30 today, we have a newcomer's coffee. Uh, that is for uh, time to be able to ask questions, get to know some of our pastoral staff, and answer any things that you guys might have. Uh, 
Also, for those that are regular attenders, a reminder to fill out your connection card, and I'll point you specifically to the place of prayer. As we want to continue to grow, become a house of prayer for all people, one of the ways that we can do that is, is for you guys to fill those out of ways that you, we can be praying for you, but also want you to think about not just yourself, but maybe it's someone like a neighbor that you're building a relationship with that doesn't know Christ, that you would want prayer specifically for them or other situations in your community. Uh, so speaking of prayer, one of the things that we believe uh, throughout a worship set is to be able to sing, to be able to hear, but also to be able to have a time of prayer ourselves. And as we just saw, a God who has done great things, we want to be able to spend some time this morning creating some space to be able to just thank God for who he is and the things that he has done and will do in our own life, in our community, in our country and beyond. And so for the next few moments, we're just going to give you time to be able to just quiet your hearts and thank God for who he is. And then I'll bring us back together in prayer and then we'll continue in more worship. So with that, take a moment to thank God for who he is and what he has done in Father, you are worthy of all of our praise. We sing great is your name because you are a great God, simply for who you are. But God, we also see the ways that you are working in and through us and our families and our community around the world, and we see that that is you, and we give you praise for that. We thank you for that, God. May we have hearts that are always thanking you, that we are praising you, God. We could go down the list of ways that you are worthy to be praised simply for who you are. So God, we thank you for that. We pray today as we worship you uh, that your name would be lifted high, that we would declare you as great. Um, and God, as that happens, pray that that would change and transform our own hearts to look more like you and that that would not stay within these walls, but it would break forth into our communities, into our neighborhoods for those that don't know Christ would be impacted by the work that happens when we praise your name here together. And Father, as we do that, God, we thank you that you are great, and we pour out our praise to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together, church. It's your breath in our lungs, 
by giving him praise. We come into this place on Sunday mornings each week and I hope our first priority is to honor him and to bring him glory, to bring him praise. It's not about first and foremost what he can do for us. It's about what we can give him. And we have breath. If we are in this room right now, we have breath and we have, we have words that we can offer up to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, thanking him and praising him for who he is. You know, we're in this series of uh, talking about sin. Um, and we're going to sing a song, actually, that we also sang last week um, called Simple Kingdom. And 
I think it's appropriate and important for us as we talk about sin and its effect on our lives as humanity that we remember the characteristics that define the kingdom of God versus what defines the kingdom of this world. So we remind ourselves what the kingdom of God is about and what it's like as opposed to the kingdom of this world that is constantly at war with us, constantly trying to pull us away from Jesus. So we're going to sing about that again this week and remind ourselves what the kingdom of God is like. Stop for the one. We want to see people the way Jesus does. Your kingdom is simple. Lord, teach it to us. Your kingdom is humble, as humble as death. King is a savior who gave his last breath. So may we die daily, our pride laid to rest. His kingdom is humble, the broken are
seated. How do we respond to a song like that is to remember, to come to communion where Jesus instructed us to, to remember what he did, uh, that he lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross, that he was raised to life so that we might be able to come into right relationship with the Father. And our response to that is to remember, to remember by taking bread, drinking the juice, to remember what he has done for us. Uh, so we are going to move into a time of communion to respond, continue in worship and remembering. Uh, we take communion uh, together in groups of five or seven, and this is for those that have placed their faith in Christ. And for those that have not placed their faith in Christ yet, I encourage you to take this time to talk to your Heavenly Father who desires to be in relationship with you. And if you have questions afterwards, find someone with a yellow lanyard. We'd love to be able to talk more on what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to have our uh, servers come forward. And then after you can come forth as you're ready, take time to be able to pray your own hearts and thank God for what he's done as you come to the table. So, Father, thank you for sending your son that we might have life and life to the full because of an empty tomb. And, God, we respond by continually week after week remembering the good news of the gospel. And, God, as we respond today, pray that our eyes would be continually lifted to you with thankful hearts for what you have done and for who you are most of all. In Jesus' name, amen. As you're ready, come forth.
is where our hope is found. God, it's where we find forgiveness. It's where we find rest. It's where we find grace and mercy and unconditional love. Father, thank you for the cross. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your plan and your purpose. Thank you for giving us breath so that we can bring it back and give you honor and praise and glory. Father, open up our hearts this morning. We want to hear what you have to teach us about yourself. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, all of us have moments where it is clear something is wrong with me. We may not call it sin. And depending on our level of self-deception or narcissism, we may not have many of those moments, but every now and then it hits. One of those moments for me came on a mission trip to New Orleans shortly after Hurricane Katrina. I was there with 20 college students from our campus ministry, and it was a great group of people. One of the people on that trip, his name is Brian. Brian quickly became the source of all our jokes. And I can say honestly, every time I ribbed him, it was out of love. I loved him. Everyone in the group loved him. But somehow during that week, our group became convinced that the only way to love Brian was to make fun of him. Mock him. The later we got into the week, it began to seem a little off to me, a little weird, but I said nothing. We kept at it. Until the last night, and Brian snapped on us. Told us he was tired of the jokes, and after a particularly good and epic rant, he walked off to bed. As the leader of that trip, I felt humiliated. What is wrong with me? 
I wondered, why did I think it was okay to spend so much of our time making fun of Brian, making him the butt of our jokes? Why did that become normal to a group of us on a mission trip to serve Jesus? Uh, Today we come to an idea about sin that's very important, but has been resisted by the church. Especially the American church. Especially the American evangelical church. For most of this series, we've talked about sin as an individual reality. Self-deception. Self-centeredness. Self-autonomy apart from God. And that's important. Sin is something else. Sin is corruption. It's systemic. Not just an individual problem, but a community problem. A systemic problem. But traditionally, the evangelical church in America has resisted this, what I would say is a very biblical idea. That to talk about systemic sin or to name things such as systemic injustice or systemic racism or whatever word you want to fill in after systemic. Themes that are very prevalent in the scriptures. If you bring those up in the American church, it's often met with firm resistance. And that's unfortunate because I want to make the case, unless you understand systemic nature of sin, you are a sitting duck. You will be so easy to be picked off and participate in evil. You will find yourself having done something, like I did with Brian, totally confused at how that happened. See, on that mission trip, it wasn't just 20 individuals all individually agreeing that we would exclusively show Brian our love through the way we made fun of him. We created a system that normalized something that isn't good. But in that system, what wasn't good, we convinced ourselves, is good. And that's just 20 people on a mission trip. What happens when millions of people get together to form governments? Or hundreds of people get together to form communities? Or universities, or whatever we would like to form together. Churches, institutions. What happens then? Well, to answer that question, I want to turn to uh, the first scripture, maybe the first scripture that begins to deal with sin in, in its systemic nature. And that's Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel story. So um, if you're able, I want to ask for you uh, to stand as I read God's word for us. Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now the whole earth had one language in the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us bake bricks, burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. They have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. 
and nothing they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there, confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Uh, So how does sin become systemic? Not just individuals sinning, but a city, a culture built on sin. Well, this passage shows a few ways that happens. And let's start with the first step, which is a community of people love what God does not love. So in verse 4, the builders of the city agree on something together. Let us build for ourselves a city with a tower in the heavens. Uh, And maybe you hear that and think, what's wrong with building a tall tower? After all, I love Chicago, the uh, Sears Tower, or the Willis Tower, or whatever it is they're calling it these days. Uh, The John Hancock Building. These are epic constructions. Does God hate them? Like, what's his problem with tall buildings? Well, nothing. The, The problem isn't the size of the tower, it's the spirit behind the tower. And the spirit behind the tower is the rest of what they say to themselves. Verse 4, let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Again, maybe you hear that and think, what's wrong with that? Well, to answer that question, you have to go back to Genesis 1, where God makes human beings and gives them a vocation in the world. And in Genesis 1, 26 and 28, he says this to human beings. This is what human beings are to do. God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And subdue it, have dominion over it. The fish of the seas, the birds of the heavens, every living thing that moves on the earth. So human beings have been made, uh, commanded by God to spread throughout the whole earth. But here in this city, they want to do the opposite of what God has asked them to do. Let us not be dispersed throughout the whole earth. So this city is built on a vision that is hostile to what God has called human beings to be and to do. But more than that, human beings already have a name. They don't need a name to make for themselves because they've already been given a name. They are made in God's image. And uh, theologian Christopher Walken described what's going on here like this. To name something is to have authority over it. In Genesis 1, God systematically names the elements of creation as he makes them and commensurate with the mandate for humanity to have dominion under God, Adam names the animals. To seek to make a name for oneself is to assert one's self-made identity or self-made autonomous independence. 
So rather than receiving their name from the Father, they want to make their own name, their own existence, apart from God. And in case we have any idea or any doubt that's what's going on in this passage, in the next scripture, in Genesis 12, when God saves Abraham or, or calls Abraham to himself, God tells Abraham what he's going to do to him, and he says this. Genesis 12, 1 and 2. Go from your country, your kindred, your father's house, to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. So for this city to be about making a name for ourselves, it's rebellion against God. So this city loves what God does not love. They do not want to fill the earth. They do not want to have a name, an identity, a power given to them by God. So what we have now is an entire community of people constructing their community around not loving what God loves. So that's first. Uh, second, then, the community creates a culture to love what God does not love. Now, culture is a word that gets thrown around a lot, uh, so let me try to define it. The culture is everything from uh, language to art to buildings. Culture includes how we communicate. Culture is a historical memory that binds a group of people together and makes sense of our particular time and, and place. So I like the way Andy Crouch defines culture. He writes, Culture is, first of all, the name for our relentless, restless human effort to take the world as it's given to us and make something else. Culture is all these things. Paintings, whether finger paintings or the Sistine Chapel. Omelets, chairs, snow angels. It's what human beings make of the world. It always bears the stamp of our creativity, our God-given desire to make something more than we were given. So think about what's going on here in Genesis. They build a tower. And a tower is culture. Because the tower communicates, we are hostile to God. We will make a name for ourselves. We will not be dispersed over the face of the earth. Yes, Genesis 1 said one thing. This tower says another thing. So what they're making of this world is a tower that communicates hostility towards God. And so everything in the city has to serve that vision. Engineers, construction companies, the economic life of the city to afford the tower... Everything must be directed to create this piece of culture that normalizes what is not true. That we can have a name for ourselves apart from God. No doubt they started recording podcasts to talk about the importance of the tower. Reality TV shows were started with who would, who would construct the best tower. My point is all kinds of culture is created around making this other piece of culture a tower. It's not just a tower, it's culture. We do not love what God loves. And we build a building to remind ourselves. And that leads me into step three. A community then will build systems to enforce that you will love what God does not love. Imagine being a construction worker in Babel. And speaking up. I think we should forego this project. It's like open hostility to God. I don't think this will end well for us. What would have happened to you? 
That's why Cornelius Plantiga in his book on sin uh, describes sin like this. An evil heart is a maze. And commenting on the overwhelming character pathology that psychiatrists have to struggle with in some patients, M. Scott Peck describes it as a labyrinth mass of lies and twisted motives and distorted communications. And that's just one patient. Let him and his kin, plus ordinary sinners and pretty good persons and everybody else, sow and reap and sow again. Let them fertilize and cross-fertilize each other, and the resulting culture will defy rational analysis. A community of sinners creates cultures and systems that defy rational analysis. Three examples. And most historians would all agree that one of the most intellectual, artistic, philosophical cultures human beings have ever produced was 1920s, 30s Germany. And yet this educated, complex, intellectual culture funded genocide. It's incredibly perplexing. How did a sophisticated, educated, artistic culture participate and empower the greatest genocide in history? It defies rational analysis. Example two, to hit a little closer to home. Think of the Declaration of Independence, which I love. It's an incredible document. We hold these truths to be self-evidence that all men, all men are created equal. That they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That among those are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What beautiful thoughts. Whoever you are, if you're a human being, God has endowed you with the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's beautiful. It's why you should light a lot of fireworks and eat an obscene amount of meat in a couple of weeks. The Lord bless you. And yet, while this document's being written, people of African descent were being oppressed and violently excluded from the the promise of those rights. How could those words be written and ratified? While doing violence to a whole race of people, it defies rational analysis. Example three to hit incredibly close to home. One of the reasons why so many have escaped the church in the last 10, 15, 20 years is the way the church has handled claims of sexual abuse from people within the church. Instead of honesty and Reporting to the police, there was cover-up and protection of abusers. How could a church do that? It defies rational analysis. And it's why I say, unless you believe in the systemic nature of sin, you are a sitting duck. You are easy pickings for systems of evil to co-opt you To get you to love what God does not love. To create culture to enforce that what God does not love is true. And then to enforce it against other people. To prevent them from loving what God loves. And it's true of all kinds of systems. A mission trip with 20 people trying to serve Jesus. Go into your average high school or middle school. And it's all kinds of systems at 
play, the lunchroom, the football field, creating culture and enforcing all kinds of things. To school systems, to governments, to armies. Sin corrupts into systems. Which raises the question, well then how can we be set free from being co-opted into evil? How can we resist evil systems and love what God loves? And I'll, whew, I wish I had like, a, like another 40 minutes to do that. But I've, I've got like nine minutes. And so here we go. Three thoughts and then I'll take my seat. First, pray. Pray. Paul also speaks to this reality. Um, this, is, this is not just sin as individual people but systems. And here's what Paul says in Ephesians 6.12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood... Against the rulers, against the authorities, or but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Did you hear that? Our primary church, a wrestle as Christians, is not against human beings, individual flesh and blood. It's against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers. It's the systems. And if you know how the church in Ephesus started, this would not surprise you that Paul wrote this to the church in Ephesus. This is a great story how the church in Ephesus uh, started. It started uh, with Paul, a pastor, starting a riot. So I want you to know that if I ever start a riot, Paul did it first. Why did Paul start a riot? I'm glad you asked. Well, the riot started because so many people were becoming Christians in Ephesus The economic system of Ephesus was becoming upended because the economy in Ephesus was built on silversmiths. There were a lot of temples in Ephesus, especially the temple to Artemis. And those temples required sacrifices of silver, idols made in silver. And so if you're a silversmith in Ephesus, you make good money because people needed silver to worship the local gods. Well, Paul has made a bunch of people become Christians who aren't worshiping those idols anymore, which means they don't need to buy silver anymore. So the silversmiths are mad. Because Paul is uprooting their economy, their city pride, their history. They start a riot. Do you see all the systems at play in that? The economy, the city history of the grand temple they have built. The buildings that made up that Temple, for the gospel to enter into that city, it had to disrupt their economy, their city pride, all of it. It wasn't just a few individuals believing in Jesus. The economy had to change. The temple to Artemis had to become less important. So what does Paul do in response? I mean, they start a riot to try to attack him, violently harm him. What does he say? Get back at these heathens. Look at these people destroying our culture, persecuting the church. Now what he says is our real fight's not against them. You have to remember, behind them is systems and powers. So we must pray. That's our weapon one. So Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 6, Take that helmet of salvation, put it on, sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Your response to the powers is prayer. Keep alert in prayer. People of prayer are better at resisting 
falling in line with systems of evil. So that's first, pray. Uh, second piece of advice to resisting evil systems is to seek shalom. Seek shalom. Now the, the city of Babel becomes a metaphor through the rest of the Bible. It shows up in, in very key places. And one place it shows up is in uh, the exile of God's people. But the next time it's, it's featured is God's people are, are shipped off from Israel to Babylon to live in exile. Just to, to imagine that. To be forcibly removed from where you live to live somewhere else. And Babylon's explicit purpose for doing that was to strip you of your culture, your gods, your religion, your history, your families, to make you Babylonian. So how in the world were faithful Jews supposed to live in Babylon? And I think that's an important question for us too, because I would say we live in a broader, uh, we live among broader systems that want to strip you of your unique Christian identity and make you of the world. So what does God say to his people to not be conformed to the world in the exile? And we got our answer. Jeremiah, a prophet, writes a letter to the people living in Babylon, and he says this to them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. That they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare, I would say shalom, of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its shalom you will find your shalom. The word shalom just means peace, goodness, wholeness. This is pretty extraordinary advice, given that it's very ordinary. How are they to, to resist the great behemoth Babylon? Build houses, get married, have kids, and seek the peace, the shalom of the city. There's a lot going on here, but to highlight a couple of things, God is, is explicit first in saying, multiply, do not decrease. Babylon wants them to go away, wants them to have their cultural identity stripped away, but God says, don't, resist that. Resist them. But their resistance is ordinary life, good homes, good gardens, good marriages. I believe if we did that, as a church, if we are a community full of safe homes, full of feasts and laughter, with thriving marriages, we would be a compelling alternative to a culture of anger, contempt, and warring against those who are different from us. God is not asking his people to change the world or to throw the Babylonian king from his throne. Just have good meals, an open home, shared with good people. The other thing that's going on here is, is we are also to participate in the shalom of, of where we live. See, systemic sin brings systemic 
brokenness into the world that de-shaloms the world, de-peacifies the world. And the result then is, is all the stuff we see broken around us from um, genocide to racism to sexual sin to injustice. That's what systems do. They, they bring non-shalom into the world. They bring corruption into the world. But God's people bring the op- opposite. We, we bring shalom to our cities. And so what, is, what does that mean? And I love the way Cornelius Plantiga puts it. It's very simple. In short, we must become responsible beings. People to whom God can entrust deep and worthy assignments. Expecting us to make something significant of them. Expecting us to make something significant of our lives. None of us finds herself here in the world. None of our lives is an accident. We have been called into existence, expected, awaited, equipped, and assigned. To be a responsible person is to find one's role in the building of shalom, the rewebbing of God, humanity, and all creation and justice, harmony, fulfillment, and delight. To be a responsible person is to find one's own role and then, funded by the grace of God, to fill this role and delight in it. Find your vocation, he's saying. Then let God's grace fund you and take delight in the station of this world he's placed you. So to think this out, if, if you're a teacher, you can't control all of the systems of school systems and disgruntled parents and school politics. But you can, to the best of your ability, create a classroom of shalom. Where each kid is honored, is loved, and is taught to the best of your ability. If you're a stay-at-home parent, you can't control everything your child is going to see or experience. But you can create a home of shalom where the words are kind, the food exceptional, the laughter endless, the joy contagious. If you're a business owner, you cannot always promise economic success, but you can Create a business of shalom where wages are fair, benefits are generous, customers are honored. Wherever God has placed you, injects shalom into that place, is what Plantiga is saying. You, you can't change the world. I'll never, that will never be a part of, of our future as it's true. As I don't believe that, but I believe in each one of your individual lives, you can create shalom where systems have tried to, to unshalom God's world. That's second. And the third, where I want to end, uh, celebrate the cross. There's a lot happening on uh, the cross. And one thing we haven't talked much about in my time here so far is something Paul talks about in Colossians 2, uh, where he says this. He says, uh, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing triumphing over them in him. So notice, the gospel is forgiveness, yes, but there's something else. Jesus, in the cross, didn't just forgive your sins. He humiliated the authorities and the systems of evil and power in this world, shaming them on the cross. Now, on the surface, it's ridiculous that Paul says this. Because the authorities or the systems of the world, Rome, most powerful political uh, city in history, uh, the religious elites of God's people, 
They won. They wanted to kill Jesus, they killed him. They put him on a cross, shamed him, crucified him. But Paul said that's not actually what was happening on the cross. That actually in that, that act of sacrifice, Jesus was undermining and undoing systems of evil by suffering on a cross. And when I read that, so that, that both encourages and discourages me. It discourages me because how does God respond to systems of evil? By shooting lightning bolts at them from heaven, by raising the church up as an army to take up our arms and take them out, and we are placed in positions of power? No. He defeats them by being defeated by them. God wins by losing. Which at first makes no sense at all, but the more you meditate on it, it, it makes perfect sense. And how do the evil systems of our world work? Power and violence, enforcement. And how does the kingdom of God work? We sang about it earlier. Suffering for his enemies. Forgiving those cursing him. Offering forgiveness to those harming him. Fellow Christians, that is our way as well. I recognize we live in a culture that is hostile to Orthodox Christianity. Our culture does not love what God loves. The vision of the communities we live in when it comes to gender and sexuality, wealth, life inside the womb, it's very different than the vision of shalom that God has. And yet, friends, I also want to say, there's never been a time when Christians lived in communities when it was easy to be a Christian. Imagine being a Christian uh, faithfully in the 1950s or the 1770s in the United States who loved what God loved. The vision of heaven that included people of all tribes, tongues, and nations. But those Christians lived in a society that hated what God loved. A society that instead enforced segregation and white supremacy. That the only way you could have loved God in the 1950s or 1770s was to suffer. Was to be rejected by the city in which you called home. Many Christians in that day were sitting ducks. And they participated with a system of evil. So we have to be honest about what we're up against. We will not expose systems of evil without suffering ourselves. And that's how we celebrate the cross. And yet, that's the discouraging part. Now let me give you the encouraging part. Jesus has broken all systems of evil with his gospel. The good news of his gospel continues to break the chains of systems and communities of people who love what God does not love. From high school geometry classes to the halls of Congress. And so let me end with high school geometry. One of the reasons I'm a Christian today is because of the small resistance of a Christian in a high school geometry class. At that point in time I was very skeptical of Christianity and, and very worn out by the church but in, in our class, uh, there was a rule. If our teacher said a cuss word, everyone in the class got to say the cuss word. Which to a high school boy sounded amazing. And sure enough, one day our teacher dropped a cuss word and we took full advantage. But Julie didn't. She resisted. Not in a self-righteous way. I'm better than you, but in a, a quiet, gentle way. She was different and I noticed. And over time, her way of being in the world was so much better. 
I can't imagine that was easy for her, being one of the only people in class who resisted. But her resistance was shalom, and that entrance of shalom into high school geometry led me into the way of Jesus. And how could she do that? How could you become a person like that? Uh, because 2,000 years ago, Jesus resisted systems of evil, let them put him on a cross, and he broke their power so that you and I could be set free to join him in breaking their power. Let me pray for us. Our Father, whatever systems of evil we might sense we're participating in now, we feel, we feel the guilt. Uh, would you release us into forgiveness? That we may participate with Jesus in, in shaloming this world, bringing peace in. May you make us people of prayer. And may you make us people who point to the goodness and victory of Jesus on our behalf. In whose name I pray. Amen. Church, as we respond. your feet, my desires and dreams I lay down. If more of you means less of me, take everything. Yes, all of you is all I need. Take
Father, that is our prayer, that you would make us more like Jesus, and that as we uh, seek to inject his presence into our, our neighborhoods, um, school rolls back around into our school, um, into our workplaces, into our families, into our homes, uh, that we might build systems of peace and goodness and love and kindness uh, to counter the, the systems of evil and, and hatred and contempt. We cannot do that. We need the power of Jesus in us. Uh, so as we prepare to leave, uh, Jesus, uh, release us with the power of your spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll have a seat. Uh, before we take off, I um, want to uh, uh, do what we do each week, which is a collect offering. Um, and to remind you, if, if this is your church home, this is one of the ways we worship God, by responding to his generosity towards us with our generosity towards him. If this is not your church home, this moment's not for you. Let the plate um, pass on by, unless you filled out a prayer card. Um, and we'd love to know how to pray for you. So offering, come forward. You guys can start receiving that. Um, uh, one really important announcement to name. In a couple of weeks, uh, we will have uh, VBS. No one clapped. Okay, that's cool. Uh, I didn't think anyone would clap, but, you know, that was my primed intro into that moment. Uh, but that, that's a really important week for us. Uh, as you recall, the Gather Initiative we're doing right now, one of the key things we want to uh, narrow in on as a church over the coming uh, years is uh, to gather the next generation. Um, and many of them are, are here with us. On a given Sunday, we'll have anywhere from 100, 120 kids uh, in children's ministry on a, on a Sunday. It's pretty wild. Um, and so in a week, we've decided let's gather them every day uh, for a whole week. Um, and so we want to, if, if you're available during uh, that week, we'd love to have you serve along with us. Not simply to, uh, you know, fill a, a, a cup full of goldfish crackers, although we'll need lots of that, I'm sure. Um, but we want adults who are ready to pour into the life of the next generation. And so I know in this service, uh, some of you all have been following Jesus for a long time, which means maybe you don't have a weekly vocation to go to Monday to Friday. Uh, and might I invite you to consider, if you haven't thought of, of serving yet, um, our kids need your presence in their lives, um, even if it's a smile, a handshake, a fist bump, uh, whatever. Um, so if you're available uh, July 10th and July 14th and you want to be a part of uh, gathering the next generation, um, we'd love to see you uh, do that for, um, for VBS, July 10th and 14th. Um, with that, as we're uh, kind of wrapping up the offering, um, if you're able, would you please stand? 
as I speak our, our benediction on the way out of here. Uh, benediction comes from Galatian, uh, Galatians 1. And the reason why I love this is uh, grace and peace, Paul's grace and peace, which is what I think we have to offer the world, a world of contempt and anger. We have experienced the grace and peace of Jesus. Um, so in light of that, uh, grace and peace to you uh, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May you live into his grace and peace this week that you are dismissed.